The main check that we go through is, does this business have a team that could run it if the owner were to retire the next day? And if the business does not pass that check, then we won't buy that business. Really, it's the kind of, you know, again, to be gruesome, unfortunately, but the get hit by a bus check. Are you ready to unleash the potential of your business by growing an unbeatable global workforce? Our sponsor, Relay Human Cloud, helps you maximize this advantage by simplifying staff hosting and services overseas. So there is no need to worry about risk or any process-related issues. At the end of this episode, I'll share a little bit more about how Fort Capital has worked with Relay Human Cloud and reveal a special offer crafted for the loyal listeners of the Fort Podcast. Stay tuned for more. I'm really impressed by our team at Fort Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces, you can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. Sieva, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. I want to start with a little bit of background on kind of how Enduring Ventures came to be and how you partnered with Xavier. So Xavier and I met, oh man, it's got to be like eight years ago now. We were both entrepreneurs in our past life. We've both built tech companies or tech adjacent businesses. And we actually met at a invite event for entrepreneurs in Utah. This event called Summit Series, they would get together a group of a hundred people or so and you'd ski for the weekend. There were some interesting speakers and it's just a great way to get to know people. I was 24 at the time. And I honestly didn't belong there. I was kind of the bottom of the totem pole. If anything, I snuck in to get an invite. And the first day I was there, I was sitting around the table at our little cabin where I was staying. And we were having a nice conversation with some of the other people that we were sharing the house with. And the door opens up and it's, it's pretty late. It was like midnight. And the door opens up and this tall guy walks in with long hair and a blonde woman walks in with him and they basically are like, Hey, we just flew in from Africa. Our, our flights got in kind of late. And is this house number four? And, and we said, no, this is like, this is house number five, but it's late. Why don't you guys hang out with us? And they seemed super cool. So they, they sat down and joined us and we had a great conversation. We went hot tubbing and I basically spent the rest of the weekend hanging out with Xavier and his ex-wife, KJ. And that's how our friendship began. Was there anything that came from there that led to starting a business? Or did y'all leave that series just purely as friends at the time? Yeah. So right there and then, I was like totally enamored with Xavier. I thought he was so smart and so fun. We had such a great weekend together. And he's 10 years older than me. He's this incredible entrepreneur. He's built a business called Better World Books, which is one of the largest booksellers on the internet, actually. 
and he sold that business. And then he started one of the largest off-grid solar companies in Africa. So he finishes his studies at Oxford for business school. He flies to Tanzania. He realizes that most people are using kerosene to light their homes. And he thinks to himself, well, I can, I can give them solar for their homes. There's, there's sun here year round. And I can just charge them using their phone minutes on a monthly basis to access the solar panel. So he builds this company. He raises hundreds of millions of dollars to light millions of people's houses. And so not only is he this incredible entrepreneur, he's also like the kindest, sweetest, fun guy that I've ever hung out with. So immediately that weekend, I think to myself, how do I spend more time with this guy? Like, I want to be like him when I grow up. I really look up to him because his business is like, do good in the world. He has a great business model that's also positively impacting millions of people. And I used to host this mastermind event once a month with other CEOs, other founders that I would invite. So on the way out that weekend, I asked for his phone number kind of awkwardly. And I say, hey, I, I want to invite you to these masterminds that we have in the future. And, and, and he ends up joining and showing up just about every month. He becomes a regular and that's how we became friends. And fast forward four years go by and he reaches out to me and he says, hey man, I hired a CEO for, for my solar company. You know, we should start something together. I have, I have a lot of respect for you. And we start kind of batting ideas back and forth. First, we think about starting something. Then we start talking about buying a business. And then he comes to me with this idea of doing a long-term holding company buying businesses, holding them for the long term, using their cash flow to go out and buy more businesses. And I'm a huge Warren Buffett nerd. So immediately, as soon as he said that, I was like, yep, that's exactly what I want to do. And I would, I would love to work with you. Okay. I think this is important because I've talked to a few people that know y'all and they think your partnership is super special. And even the little bit that you've already given me, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that when they're going to go do their next business or their third business, it really all becomes about who is the person I'm going to do it with or who is the co-founder. Obviously, y'all found each other. How long from that time he's like, hey, let's let's go do something together. Did you guys actually put pen to paper and make it official and have a plan? Was this like weeks, months, years? Like how long did that part take? It took a little while and we already had this benefit of knowing each other for years because this mastermind, it was a very intimate experience, right? It, it, it really became a place where you can come, you can share kind of your deepest, darkest concerns about your business and have this group of other CEOs chime in and give you feedback on what you can do. Because being a CEO, being a leader of any organization, and, and I'm sure you you can recognize this too is it can be pretty lonely at the top you know there's just some things that you're not going to tell your employees and then there's some things kind of day to day that you won't always tell your investors while while it's happening and it helps to have a group of like-minded CEOs who care about your outcome giving you that type of feedback so i really got a peek into his kind of day-to-day life how he thinks how he approaches difficult situations and he did the same with me, right? So we really got to know each other. And when he came to me with with this idea of doing a holding company, I didn't feel the need of structuring some kind of agreement immediately or deciding what the terms were going to be. 
here's this guy that I've looked up to for years that I think is incredible. I just wanted to work with him. And honestly, like, I didn't really care about the economics at the time. I just assumed that, you know, he's much older, he's much wiser. I'm just going to bring a lot of energy to this and we'll figure this out. And it wasn't until six months later that we really started putting pen to paper and figuring out what all that meant. Cool. As it sits today, how would you describe your role and his role? And to be fair, or, or just so I understand, is it, it is a 50-50 partnership? So y'all share decision equally? It is a 50-50 partnership. He was incredibly generous out the gate. You know, he could have easily said, hey, it's going to be 75-25. And I would have happily taken that. You know, here's this guy who's built a couple of incredible companies and I'm just like a young gun. I've built a couple of small companies, but Xavier is one of the kinder, kind of fairer individuals I've ever worked with, no matter what it comes down to, whether it's negotiating a deal, dealing with investors, talking to our portfolio company CEOs. He has a internal guiding system that really sets the baseline for kind of kindness and fairness in this world. And that's, that's something that I really appreciate about him. So yes, we are 50-50. Our relationship has evolved over time because I think, you know, when you start working with someone, you don't really know what they're going to bring to the table or how they're going to act on a day-to-day basis. So what I recommend to anybody starting a company is first and foremost, do what Xavier and I did. Even though we knew each other for many years, we had a series of conversations that defined what do we like to do on a day-to-day basis? How do we like to operate? What are things that we actually don't like to do? Because I think when a lot of people start their partnership for the first time, or at least this is how I felt in, in their head or in my head, I would think, I'm going to do whatever it takes every single day to make this successful, even if it's unpleasant. And that's just the signal that I'm going to give to the world and even my business partner that I'm working with. But actually, that sets you up for frustration down the line because you won't be able to perform on a consistent basis around things that you don't love to do. You can do it for a short period of time, but you won't be able to do it over years and years. So actually, the thing to do is to sit and say, hey, like, these are some things I really don't want to do. How do you feel about that? And if you can have that conversation up front, it's going to put you on a much better footing to grow a partnership. So in those early conversations, Chris, basically what, what we talked about is Xavier said, you know, I love the finance side of things. If I wasn't running this business, I'd probably be a public company CFO. So he's like a total nerd about finance financial structuring, deal structuring, et cetera. But he says, I don't love the day-to-day operations. You know, if, if I have to be the CEO of a company, I can do it. I mean, he's done it a couple of times, but it's an energy drag for me and I, it's just not so exciting for me. And then my reaction to that was actually, we have a good fit for each other because we're kind of a jigsaw piece. I don't know much about finance yet, and I don't know much about structuring or financial engineering, but I've been a CEO. I love operating. I'm totally happy to make sure the trains run on time. And as our partnership has evolved, that's basically where it's gone. His position has become kind of more and more high level, high leverage. 
And my position has become more day-to-day focused, making sure you know, we're stopping in the right places, we're heading in the right direction, and our CEOs are getting the support that they need from us. Okay. Well, can you give me a little bit of color in the things I've read? I understand it's a holding company. You might even say it's a, a baby Berkshire, but how is it set up today? Like, what is the structure of Enduring? And then we'll get into all the different types of businesses you own. But how's it set up, both from a structure standpoint? And if I was investing with you as an LP, what am I expecting? Yeah, the, the structure question is an interesting one because it's something we put a lot of thought into from day one. Because the structure of your organization is going to define how you behave on a day-to-day basis. Um, So right out the gate, Xavier did a lot of research on the Berkshire Hathaway structure and why Warren made certain decisions and other trade-offs in the early days. So we structure ourselves as a private C corporation. Berkshire, of course, was a public company when when, uh, Warren acquired it. But we said, look, we're going to try our best to emulate his structure and strategy. We're just going to do it in the private markets. So we started a C-Corp. We divided up the shares half and half. And then we went out and we raised a little bit of capital into the C-Corp. So we sold off some shares. The reason a C-Corp is important to what we're doing is because we are long-term minded. For us and our investors, this is a 15 plus year journey. And if you're going to compound and reinvest the capital from our companies year after year after year, the most efficient way to do that is inside of a C corporation. And I would compare that as opposed to like a private equity firm or an LLC that's distributing capital. So if you're distributing capital through an LLC or through a fund, your investors are getting taxed on that. And then what are they doing with that capital? Usually they're taking it and they're reinvesting it again. So they reinvest again, and then at some point they get their money distributed and they have to pay taxes again. So there's a friction and taxation event, personal income taxation event that's happening every time they return capital. A C-Corp is not designed to efficiently return capital to its investors. So why do a C-Corp? Well, the profits of a C-Corp are taxed at a, you know, let's say, kind of mid 20% range on any given year, right? It's a corporate income tax level. So the corporation is getting taxed at a more efficient level than an individual would be. So if we make a dollar, if we make a hundred dollars in the, in the corporation, we can reinvest, let's say 70 to, to 80 of those dollars back into the company. Whereas if you're redistributing money to an individual, maybe they're paying like high 30s. So you only have 60 to $65 to reinvest. And over a long period of time, every single year that you can do that, that number becomes quite big and you you lose quite a bit to, to taxes and just general friction. And then, you know, the last thing I'll say is, well, if the company's not designed to distribute cash flow, how do you participate as a shareholder, right? That was that was one of your questions. And the answer is we we did something a little bit innovative for this world, but not innovative relative to other companies. So we took some inspiration from companies like SpaceX that have done private market liquidity events. So 
you know, what that means is if you're an investor that invests in enduring ventures, we really want you to be thinking about this as a 15 year plus investment. And anybody who has, and we have hundreds of shareholders, anybody who has invested in us is really thinking about it in that time scale. But, you know, life changes, people have different events in their life and they may need to sell down some of their shares. So what we've done is we've come up with this liquidity window every two years where the company is actually required to buy back shares from the investors. So I'll walk through that just briefly for you. So every two years, we do a val- an internal valuation of all of our companies, all of our main companies. We add up the valuations of those companies. We, of course, subtract any debt, add any cash on the balance sheet. That drives the enterprise value and therefore the share value. And whatever value that share is, the company is required to keep 40% of its cash on hand in order to buy back shares from investors as long as the company is in a healthy state to do so. So you as a shareholder could say two years later or six years later, hey, I want to sell 10% of my shares. You know what the share value is and the company is required to buy shares from you at that price. Two questions. Who sets the internal valuation? Do y'all hire a third party or is that just a board that y'all have internally of investors and founders that help kind of collectively come up with that value? Yeah. So we, we looked at some third party valuation firms and I've, I've had third party valuations done in the past. Nothing against third party valuation firms. Their job is very hard, but I've just found that their valuation methodology can swing by like 50% or more. And it's usually because they don't know the market. They're not getting enough reps in that particular industry. So they'll come in and they kind of do their best job to put their finger in the air. What we realize is actually we know our businesses best and we are super aligned because we're the two largest shareholders to get the share price directionally right, right? To be as close as we can get. So we know that an HVAC company with this much EBITDA sells for these types of multiples. And we know that a broadband business with this much revenue sells for these types of multiples. So we feel like between the two of us, we really have a a kind of a much better chance of getting closer to what the truth is than a third-party valuation firm. So that's, that's how we do it. And then I love that two-year window, and I've seen this done in real estate a little bit. So obviously, investors know when the two-year like window's coming. There's like a date that they can kind of prepare for. What if if no investors want to sell shares, then there's no like trigger to still buy shares back. There's just no shares to be bought during that window. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And then what if, for example, a ton of people want to sell shares? Are you obligated to buy all the shares that want that people want to be purchased, or is it just that whatever that forty percent of cash can afford, and that's and that's where you max it out? Yeah, I love these questions because we spent months and months figuring out the different types of scenarios that could occur that would best align us with our shareholders while also protecting the company. So what we did is. We didn't want a situation where, you know, let's say all of a sudden a couple of our biggest shareholders need to sell all their shares all at once. We didn't want to have a situation where the company is put into peril, right? What if the company needs some of that cash on hand in order to to pay something off? 
So what we did instead is we did a, we have a balance sheet health check. So the business is required to be of certain health with a certain amount of cash on its book in order to be mandated to buy back shares from the investors. And, you know, if like 15 shareholders want to sell down their shares and it trips up that balance sheet check, then they're just going to be able to sell their shares pro rata relative to their ownership. And then they're going to have to wait two more years to sell down more of their shares, unless some of our other shareholders want to buy some of their shares, which can happen as well. The only other way I've heard it done in real estate is if I think it's even with people, even if they're getting uh, liquidated when they ask for it, they can convert their shares can convert into a note so that the general partnership basically can pay them their shares out over five years at like prime plus whatever. And so they might get like 30% of the cash up front and then the rest converts to a note, which makes it easier for the, the main mothership to get the cash out. If you're taking, you said y'all had shares, then you raised some money. I'm assuming y'all raise as you go throughout this partnership. So do you distribute new shares every two years as well? Or can you do that whenever you want? We have the ability to do that whenever we want. We did it when we first started. And then we did another fundraise a little over a year ago. Um, And we really haven't raised capital since. We've just mostly left that capital on our balance sheet. We're waiting for some good investments to deploy it on. We may raise more capital in the future, which would mean issuing more shares and diluting all of us shareholders equally. What we've also done is we have raised capital into some of our deals directly. And that's actually something that we're going to be doing more and more of now that we've built up some experience, finding great businesses, diligencing them, placing the talent to run those companies. Now, we would like to start doing those deals and allow some of our shareholders and some of our greater community to actually co-invest with us in those deals. So almost like an independent sponsor model, but one that we're co-investing in. So maybe we'll put up a million bucks and then we'll have other shareholders co-invest with us so that they can participate in the cash flow distributions of that business. So that's something that we're just now rolling out. We were calling it Capital Partners because it's a little bit of a different model and it puts us more in the GP fund seat as opposed to just the holding company seat, which we were in before. On some of these permanent capital or kind of long horizon models, I'm always fascinated. How are y'all incentivized? Like in my business, it's a promote. We do a deal. We Anything above an eight, we split profits. But when you're compounding capital and you're not really distributing, like how are y'all taken care of if you do really well? Yeah. So the holding company model is not designed for people that are in a rush to get rich. And I'll explain that. So in our model, we are paid a fixed salary and we did it in a quirky way because we, we, we don't want any incentives that look unfair to our investors, right? So we've really gone the length to set up boundaries and limitations on compensation and incentives that passes the sniff test for our investors and feels aligned. So not only do we set a salary for ourselves, but we set a fixed limitation on how much it appreciates. So basically we did the average of our two ages times 10,000 
adjusted for inflation. So everybody can kind of figure out what is our <laughs> what is our year-to-year salary. But you also know that in any given year, we can't just double our own salary without distributing equally to all shareholders. So that's how it works for us on the baseline. The rest of our value, the rest of our wealth is accrued and created through the, our, our holdings and enduring ventures. And it's specifically designed that way because we are highly motivated to increase our personal wealth. And as we increase our personal wealth, which is these shares that we hold, we increase the value of the shares for our investors. Is there any type of promote though, or any type of like you get bonus shares if you hit certain targets or you like stock options of any kind, or is it like the initial stock you started with is really all that you have to grow? The, the three ways basically that we can create value for ourselves through our shares is one, we can increase our total equity value by bu- buying more great companies or growing the companies that we already hold. So that's one. Two is we can distribute cash flow to all shareholders equally. And then three, we can buy back shares, right? So we, as large shareholders in the company, are highly motivated to actually buy shares from other shareholders that may want to sell. But those are really the only three ways. And even our employees aren't given any shares. You know, we both come from the tech world and I don't know how much time you spent in it, but in the tech world, most executives are receiving shares for free, basically, right? They're vesting shares over a period of time that are that don't have an economic value. They don't have to come out of pocket to pay for them. Now, the main lesson that I've learned running this business is that does not work here. We want all of our executives to have skin in the game. We want them to take cash out of their own pocket to co-invest in either our individual companies or in the parent company. So at our holding company level, there's just five of us, me, Xavier, Andy, Nick, and Nasser. And any employee of the company is actually required to buy shares in order to receive shares in Enduring Ventures. So they get a base pay, they get a cash bonus, and then they get some bonus that is also cash, but that they are required to then use to buy shares in Enduring. So that's actually another way that the value of our shares goes up because by default, as our company grows, those employees will be buyers of shares that could go into the liquid marketplace. Oh man, I love it. I've seen I've seen on the on the real estate side I've seen something similar where there's a little more nuance to it, but the the this GP in particular, he has basically an evergreen permanent vehicle and he set up something that's basically like I'll either give you a $3 bonus and I'm making these numbers up. I'll give you a $3 bonus in cash if you want it all cash. I'll give you $4 if you want to keep two and buy two or keep $2, but you have to use the other two to buy shares, or I'll give you $5, but you got to use all five to buy shares. And he just said, it's fascinating to see like people through their careers, once they've kind of made cash, they're almost always spending all five to just buy shares. I love that model. That's a genius mechanic. I I appreciate that he's giving people a choice too. So you can not only can you see, of course, you know, who, who needs more cash today, which is a real thing, but also like who really believes in the company, who's fully bought in. We took this model from Constellation. You know, we haven't really invented anything new at Enduring Ventures. We've just picked some of our favorite things around incentives. And Constellation Software is one of the only companies that 
I've uh, that I've studied that went public, sold off a certain amount of shares, and has never reissued more shares. They don't give shares to their employees. They don't give shares to their president, but they require that all of their employees buy down shares. So if you look at the share count at Constellation Software, it started up here and it's just slowly decreased over time. And that's our goal with Enduring Ventures as well, is to create a mechanism where over time, the number of shares just decreases over time. Let's move down chain a little bit. So you raised this money, you started this holding company, and obviously you were going to use it to start buying businesses. And y'all are, to be fair, y'all are kind of agnostic. You're not industry specific or geography. You'll kind of look at anything and everything. Is there anything you won't look at? Yeah, we're just about agnostic. Uh, We'll look at anything. We are traditionally CapEx light, asset light, We're looking for cash flow producing companies, in particular, cash flow producing companies that can grow and still spit off cash flow even as they grow. Those are my favorite types of businesses. We will look at just about anything, but there are certain categories of businesses that we don't look at and we just don't look at today. Basically, the whole category of healthcare or healthcare affiliated businesses. We don't look at anything in biotech. We avoid industries that we see as shrinking over time, because this is really a business that we're planning to do until we die or retire, is what I say, Uh, even though that sounds a little dark, but that's just the truth of it. So if we're going to be doing this for the next 20, 30, 40 years, we really want to be buying into industries that we think are still going to be around or not, not decreasing over that time period, because it'll put competitive pressure on our businesses as that industry gets smaller. And what's it like to, I'm I'm just envisioning maybe a month of time, maybe 10 deals come in that are all across the board. In my world, we just buy one type of industrial real estate. So it's just like looking at the same thing over and over again. Do you kind of feel like that's what you're doing when you're seeing all these deals? Since you've seen so many and business is kind of like chicken, like a lot of it's similar. There's a few things that are different about each business. Or does every business that come in just kind of feel like, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and figure this one out? Business does all taste a little bit like chicken. And if it doesn't taste like chicken, then we don't look at it. And what I mean by that is there's a certain buy box, a certain focus for us of things that we can quickly and easily understand that has similar dynamics to the other businesses that we look at. And then there's this whole world of businesses that is too complex, whether it's through financial engineering or just how the customer business cycle works for us to understand. And we spend no time on that because our time is, you know, as you're alluding to, is is highly limited. The number of opportunities, especially in our segment of the, the market, which is kind of what they call lower middle market, but it's really SMB to lower middle market, is unlimited. There's so many opportunities out there. There's so many great businesses that are priced fairly. And for us, it's really that three to six times cash flow range. And because of that, it allows us to say no to things very quickly, right? If it doesn't look like chicken and it doesn't look like the best chicken we've ever seen, then we very quickly just say no and we pass on that business because our threshold to buying a business is, is this business better than all of our portfolio businesses? And if it's not, let's just pass and keep moving. 
So the bar just kind of keeps getting raised and raised. The bar keeps going up and up. What I thought was a great business three years ago today is just a mediocre business. And what I've really learned through this process is that if you can buy a mediocre business at a great multiple, let's say at like a three times multiple even or four times multiple, which is a great return. Hey, that's a 25 to 33% cash on cash return. It is not worth doing that deal because there are outstanding businesses out there that you can buy at a fair multiple as well. Let's say maybe a four to six times multiple, but that business will throw off cash and it will compound and it will grow for you. And when you can get that trifecta in your company, it's totally worth holding out and waiting for the right opportunity because those types of businesses can really like change the course of the story that we're writing with Enduring Ventures. Whereas a nice small cash flow business that's always going to just spit off 25 to 33%, that will add to our story. That will create a little bit of cash flow for us to go and buy more businesses, but it's never really going to create the kind of opportunity that can really change the future of Enduring Ventures. Can you go a little deeper on that? So you, you, I'll just, I'll rephrase what you said, and then maybe you can just, it's maybe like what you've learned over three years. So you said three years ago, a business that I thought was great, three years later, I realized was mediocre. Aside from just multiple paid, which obviously might be an indicator that it was an average business because you were able to pay three, like what are the big things that come to mind when you think, yeah, now when I look at that same business, it's mediocre. Like what, what might be characteristics that, looked great, but not so great. Yeah, I I think it boils down to a couple of different elements. The first one that comes to mind is what is the growth opportunity for this business, right? If I have a company that's like a, a widget maker, maybe it's creating custom molding for aerospace equipment, that in itself may be an incredible business that's defensible. But if you look at the greater opportunity and you think to yourself, okay, they've really nailed this corner of the market, but how do they grow from 3 million of EBITDA to 9 million of EBITDA? Maybe you need to get a whole new customer set. Maybe you need to expand into parts of the aerospace industry, which you just have no experience in and you have no experience selling into. And this business, which is a good business by itself, could potentially do those things with a great leader, but it's a bit of a leap of faith if they're going to have to change their business model, they're going to have to change their sales process to do it. So for me as a buyer, I would discount all of those things, right? I would just look at in this little industry, this little niche that they're focused on within aerospace, this particular part or the adjacent parts, could they grow this business from 3 million to 9 million or more? And if the answer is no, then it's probably a better decision for me to go out and find a business that could grow from 3 million to 9 million and more because the expected value equation, if you're running the expected value equation today, goes up, right? No matter what, that one will, will the first business will always be constrained, whereas the second business, if it can grow and it can spit off cash flow and can grow and spit off cash flow, it totally changes your risk reward profile because every small business that you buy is going to be risky, right? You have management risk, you have industry risk, you have competition risk. 
So if this opportunity set is constrained and you have the same risk as a second opportunity set that is unlimited, then your potential value in that second company is much higher, right? And when I talk about growth, like we're not growth investors, right? I'm not looking for that business to double or triple over five years. I'm just looking for a path that says, hey, whether it takes three years, whether it takes 10 years, whether it takes 15 years, this business year over year could grow and there really is that potential. So I would say that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned because as an outside person looking in, you know, I invest my money in the S&P 500 and it returns 8% per year over the last 50 years. So when I saw a business that was returning 25 to 33%, to me, that's, that's a no-brainer. I should make that investment all day. But then after being in the pool, after, after, after being in the swimming pool that is the, the business buying world, I've really learned that actually, like just because it's a good opportunity and a better return than the S&P doesn't mean that it's actually the best opportunity for both my money, which you know is, is limited, and my time, which is highly limited. I, I really think that's, that's one of our, our biggest learnings. I can, I can probably share a couple others, but that's been a big one for us. Okay. Let's just talk about buying the deal. Is there anything that y'all bring to the table that's unique? There's permanent equity that uses no debt. There's tiny that can close on a deal in 30 days. There's I, I've, all these companies that I've, I've watched. Like, How do y'all think about buying? Do y'all have a unique advantage when buying any of these businesses? I think our unique advantage is really the structure of our holding company and the fact that we've both been founders and CEOs. So if you're a business owner, let's say you own the largest plumbing company in Austin, Texas, and you've been running this business for 25 years. You're so proud of it. It has an incredible brand in the area. It's known to do great work. It charges a little bit more than the other guys, but you can really trust them to deliver a quality service. And you go to sell this business because you're ready to retire What is your business? Your business isn't some kind of asset that you're flipping, right? It's not some kind of hard product. It's not like a building. It's not a bicycle. Your business is a group of people that have helped you run this business for the last 20 years. And it is your brand that you've created, which is really how your customers feel about you. So let's say your name is John and you go to sell this business If you sell your business to private equity, you may get a great price, but you know, because your friends have sold their business to private equity, you know that you trust the first group of guys. They've done a really good job. They're going to take care of your employees and your customers. But at some point, two to three years from now, they're going to sell to the highest buyer because they're money motivated. They are no longer legacy brand, community, customer motivated, right? So their incentives are to sell it to the highest person and that group may be good. And then that group is going to sell your business to the next highest bidder two to three years from now. And you lose control of how are your employees treated? How are your customers treated? You know, they may start cutting corners with customers in order to drive up profits. They may change up the benefits of your employees that have worked with you for so long. And the reality is that you really can't walk away from that reputation, right? These are people that have helped you build your wealth. These are people you really care about. So 
On the other side of things, if you are an owner that really cares about your employees, if you really care about your customers, you should be looking to sell your business to the right buyer that you can trust to take care of those employees and to take care of those customers over the long term. And that's really where the holding company model shines, right? The Berkshires of the world, or in this case, you know, in a, in a smaller part of the industry, the enduring ventures of the world. You can get to know us. You can get to know our companies. We'll get to know your employees. And you will know that when you sell your business to us, look, we may not be the highest bidder. You may have to take a small discount on your price, but you know for a fact who you're selling to. You know we're going to take good care of your employees. And you really know that we're going to take good care of your customers because the brand to us is always going to matter, right? We're never going to cut corners with the customers today to eke out a, a quick profit because that's going to bite us five or six, bite us in the butt five or six years from now. So that's really the the main differentiator that we have. And, and, you know, of course, we've been founders in the past. So I think we know what it's like to start a business. We know what it's like to work late nights. We know what it's like to not pay ourselves for a long time, it just in order to pay the payrolls of our employees so they can put food on their tables. So I think it's just a little bit of a different experience with us than selling to like a financial buyer or something like that. And I would assume it also probably already tells you something about the founder, anybody that's willing to take less for their company to make sure the company's intact and their people are taken care of. It's already telling you enough about who the person is you're dealing with. I mean, you're not going to find some shark that's also thinking about protecting his people and protecting his company. They, they kind of don't coexist. That's absolutely right. And we found that we usually don't participate in auctions like company auctions. If you're trying to get the best price through a broker, that's just not us. You're looking for a different type of outcome than the one that we want to provide to our sellers. But the sellers that either reach out to us directly or connected through their kind of wealth advisor or their lawyer to us are really the types of businesses that we want to own, the types of communities that we want to be part of and vice versa. And, and I just think that's a that's a better relationship for us. You kind of just touched on it. How do you all source opportunities? I know both you and Xavier have built, built online presences, which we, we might be able to talk about. I'm sure that attracts opportunity, but how, how else do you all source if you don't participate in auctions? So we have intermediaries in our network that know what we like. We have a scout program on our website. I think it's just enduring.venture slash scout where people can sign up and uh, send us deals that they think are interesting. Anybody who's kind of a lawyer, an estate planner, an accountant, and some people just have like a, an uncle or a friend or whatnot that owns a cool company that's made a bunch of money off of it. And you know, they hear them at the local picnic, just at the family picnic, just saying, hey, like, I'm exhausted. I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, I want to spend more time with my kids or I want to travel more with my partner. I'm looking for someone to buy this business. And kind of when they hear that, they now reach out to us. We have hundreds and hundreds of scouts that have signed up on our website. And scouts can get paid, actually, when they refer a deal that we end up buying. So nowadays, I would say half of our deals come, th come through some intermediary, whether it's a scout, a lawyer, an accountant, a wealth manager, or they come through our network, right? These are people that follow Xavier and I on Twitter or LinkedIn or read my newsletter, and they've really bought into this 
kind of vision that we have for Enduring Ventures of buying businesses and holding them for the long term. So they'll refer us to, to owners that want to sell. The other half of our network is brokers, investment bankers, et cetera. And they also, you know, the ones that we've worked with in the past, they know what we're looking for. They know the type of buyer they are. So when their seller kind of shares concerns around, hey, like, I don't really want to sell to a roll-up or I don't want to sell to private equity. Like, are there other types of buyers out there? They'll reach out to us and and we'll have a, an opportunity to take a look at that business. Do you all care if the founder of the business or maybe the existing operator of the business, CEO, do they need to stay on post-close or do you leave that window open? Like, how do you incentivize people post-transaction? It's completely up to them. We've done both. So sometimes the owners have stayed around. Sometimes the owners want to retire immediately. We had one owner who very clearly during the acquisition and very honestly said, the day this acquisition closes, is it? Do not call me the day after. (laughs) And it was great. You know, he had a business partner, fortunately, that made buying that business okay for us, right? Because it was our pool construction business. We don't know anything about building pools. So we did need someone to stick around and, and help with the transition process. But the main check that we go through is, does this business have a team that could run it if the owner were to retire the next day? And if the business does not pass that check, then we won't buy that business. Really, it's the kind of, you know, again, to be gruesome, unfortunately, but the get hit by a bus check, right? If the owner disappears the next day after they buy their business or they go on vacation, they take a cruise and they decide to stop answering our calls, will this business get hurt or will it just continue on like nothing happened? And for us, we really need to feel confident that this business would continue on without them. Is it fair to say that's one of the biggest items of due diligence that you do then is at least getting that question asked before you kind of dig into other parts of the business? Like that one is a must has to be has to be answered. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's kind of no way around that. You know, sometimes owners will say will worry about their teams finding out about the acquisition and getting spooked, but really we try to coach the owner the owners, hey, like your team needs to know you if you control the narrative you can frame it up the way you feel is appropriate and then we'll come in and get to know your team because we need to get comfortable that you know we know who's running this business we know who's answering the call we know who's running operations because you know we can't control how the owner feels the day after they retire Usually we will align incentives, right? We'll structure some kind of agreement that keeps them around for some period of time, whether it's usually up to a year or so. But again, we want to make sure that our investment is protected. So the most important thing is is really the people. And ultimately, like when a company is a great brand, it's really just a reflection of its people. So we really have to get to know what's under the hood there. And last question on just kind of the the top brass, either the founder or the CEO, in a long-term model where you're buying and holding, what are some, maybe it's not just one way, but how do you incentivize somebody to stay on in a long-term business where they know there's not some big exit or liquidity coming anytime in the future? Do they, how, how, do you, how do you incentivize them? Well, I think first and foremost, the most important thing is finding the right people. Right. There are hired guns out there who are jumping from company to company, working for private equity, 
being incredible CEOs, but their number one goal in life is to jump into a company, run it very successfully, sell it three years later, make their money, and then go to a different business. That is not the type of person we're looking for. I'm sure they're incredible at running their companies. They've obviously been successful over and over again, but that is just a very different mindset of the type of executive or CEO that we're looking for. The executives and CEOs we're looking for are ones that want to be some part of something for the long term. They're not looking to jump from job to job. They want to be part of a group that they know a group that they understand and a brand that they love and want to continue running for 10, 15 years or more. And then we will design their incentives in such a way that are aligned with somebody that wants to stick around and not be part of an exit. So that usually looks like, uh, you know, for the executives, that usually looks like something like a base pay, some bonus and cash distributions as part of their kind of ownership or phantom ownership of the companies. So they have three different ways that they can make money, but none of them are really designed around getting an exit. I was looking at how you all structured and you had seller note, you have financing, but you had something called seller note on full standby. What does that mean? Yeah. So that's a bit of a relic from our SBA days. When we started Enduring Ventures, we raised a little bit of equity from friends and family. We put up a little bit of our own money, and then we went and bought some businesses using the SBA. And the SBA, for people who don't know, is what I consider to be one of the most incredible government programs out there that stimulate the economy. Basically, it's a loan program that allows you to buy small businesses. And you can let's say you buy a business that's worth a million dollars. You can put up anywhere between five to 10% of that million dollar value in your own cash. So in that case, 50 to 100K in order to buy a business that's worth a million dollars. And the SBA program, which is a government-backed program, will allow you to take a loan for the rest of the value. Now, you can take a loan up to $5 million per individual person. So when we were getting the SBA, when we were getting the SBA in order to buy our first couple businesses, which is really what jump-started this whole journey, which really got us out of the gate owning our own first businesses and generating cash flow, what we did is we went to the owners and we said, hey, I would we're going to give you some amount of cash up front. We're going to give you a little bit of money held back in a seller note that we pay you over the next, let's say, five or six years every year. And then 5% of the deal value, let's say we're buying a million dollar business, is going to be held on full standby to be paid after the loan is fully paid off. And the reason to do that is because the SBA sees that as a part of your equity commitment. So they may say, hey, Sieva, I want you to put up 10 to 15%, let's say 15% of the capital as equity. Well, I could put up 10% if the owner is going to keep 5% on full standby. And actually, we've seen that work with not just the SBA, some traditional lenders now, because we've we've graduated out of the SBA, we're too big to use SBA debt. But now we've seen some traditional lenders actually be open to this idea as well, where they say, hey, we want you to put up you know, 40% of the equity, but if the owner takes a 10% full standby, 
will consider that as equity as well. So you can put up 30%, the owner can hold back 10%. And it's really just a way to get the deal done and find a meeting of the minds between the seller, the bank, and the owners, right? The seller might want a slightly higher price. The bank might only be willing to pay a certain amount. And the seller might be limited by how much equity they could put into a specific deal. We kind of got two more topics. We're going to end on Scribe, which I think is the latest and greatest, and we've all got friends in Scribe. But how many businesses does Enduring Ventures own today? Is it is it 21 or something close to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm losing count, but it's it's like 21 businesses or so. Three of them are businesses that we've started, and the rest are businesses that we've acquired. And, you know, I I say I'm losing count tongue in cheek, but the the reason really is that we have some platforms at Enduring Ventures like Snowball Industries, for example, and Rango. So Rango is our broadband platform. It owns four broadband businesses that provide internet to people's homes and small businesses. Snowball Industries is an HVAC and plumbing platform. It owns, I believe now, four or five companies. Uh, it's I think five. Four of them are HVAC and plumbing companies. One of them is a marketing company for residential services or HVAC and plumbing companies. So the times when I lose count is when those individual platforms are out there making deals, doing acquisitions, because sometimes, you know, they're smaller and they don't even end up on my radar. Okay. What, what do you require? So now I, I'm just picturing you and Xavier are at the mothership. You have all these great businesses that are hopefully producing cash. What's your requirement from the business of how they get cash to you? I'll start with that question. That's our number one requirement for our businesses. Please send us cash. <laughs> we see Enduring Ventures as a lake, right? The balance sheet at Enduring Ventures is like a lake. And all of our different companies are the streams that trickle into our lake and make our lake larger and larger. And then we can use that balance sheet, which is Enduring Ventures, in order to go and make new investments. So whenever we acquire a business... We work with the CEO of that business in order to do a year plan budget. So they're planning for the next 12 months and they're deciding, here's the investments that I'd like to make. Here's how much money I think I need to run the business. And any dollar above budget automatically gets sent to the mothership, which in this case is Enduring Ventures. So it all really just happens up front. And then we refresh it on a yearly basis. Sometimes one of our business owners, one of our CEOs wants to make an investment or an acquisition that didn't get considered inside of the budget, then at that point, we'll sit down and we'll have an investment committee type conversation, right? Because at the Enduring Ventures level, we have a very tight investment committee process when we're looking at a business to buy. So at that company level, when they want to make an investment decision, it's the same type of calculus, right? That we would make at the Enduring Ventures level. So our team will get in there help with diligence, help with the investment process and make a decision on, is this really the best use of our dollar or would we rather send it back to Enduring Ventures and you know make a future investment? Has there ever been a time where the CEO of a business said, hey, I want to go make this investment and y'all at Enduring said, yeah, it sounds great, but it actually doesn't work. And and like, what would be a reason why there was any con or not conflict, but a discrepancy in in how you thought the dollar should be used? 
Yeah, I would say most of the time we are very collaborative with our CEOs around those types of decisions, right? They know that they are the operators of the businesses. And when it comes to buying a business, we are the pros in this scenario, right? They really look to us. They really lean on us to decide, is this the right business to buy? Is this the right price, et cetera? The one time we had a little bit of friction with one of our CEOs is because we made a mistake. We did not do a good job of setting the right expectations around what is a type of business that they should be buying and what is the price of that business. And it was largely because we were still pretty naive and new and we weren't ready to kind of give them that type of guidance. So when it came down to it, they had a business that they really liked We took a look at it. We felt like it was expensive and we had that conversation. They were open to the feedback, but, you know, in retrospect, I realized that if you're going to have a platform CEO out there acquiring businesses, you really want to have a clear, tight buy box. And that can be, that should be a lot tighter than what you would even look at normally as an investor, because if it is something that's outside of that buy box, then they know that, hey, this is an unlikely deal. I still may surface it to my investment committee, but it won't create that type of conflict where they get really excited about something and we have to tell them, "Mm, you know what, this one's a little too expensive. Okay. One more question on this. Besides sending cash, how do y'all think of yourself? And I've, you know, I've done a couple of these episodes with, with folks that have hold codes, like what's your line of, this is not our job. This is your job, or this is your job. Because sometimes I know that line can shift. It's not always just like crystal clear. And I would imagine with 21 businesses or however many are reporting to you on a, on a normal basis, you know, y'all's level of involvement, I would assume you want to be less and less, not more and more. That's right. We work with incredible CEOs with decades of experience in their industries. So our partnership and our expectation is they are the face of the company and they really run the business as their own. That's where we've had the greatest success is somebody has decades of experience in a very similar industry, running a similar type of business and has proven themselves to be successful in that role. And we we turn all of the day-to-day operations of that business to that person. And they can really lean on us as a board member. Sometimes they want to check in monthly. Sometimes they want to check in quarterly. We'll get their finances sometimes every week, but definitely every month. And everything else is really in their domain. The times that I find that I'm getting very operational with our businesses means that either we haven't worked out our relationship yet with that particular CEO, or perhaps, you know, we need a CEO with a little bit more firepower and a little bit more like personal experience for that role. So like you said, our, our job is really to buy those businesses and be a good sounding board, be a good board member but it's really their job and their role. And and hopefully they're really excited to be kind of the face and the name of these businesses. And when it comes back to things like finance or legal operations, we have a team that'll support them on those items. Okay. All right, let's bring it home with a cool story. This is timely because over the last week, y'all announced a new business, Scribe with an incredible mutual friend as a CEO. But I think what's cool about the story is how it came to be, 
the influence that like Twitter played in all this. And like, it might just be a picture of how not the future is, but how deals are going to get done. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people ask you sometimes like, why do you spend time on Twitter? Why do you do these type of activities? And then you hear a story like scribe and it's like, okay, I kind of get it. So if you could tell it to me from your perspective, like how this all went down, I think this would be a great way to bring this home. Sure. Happy to share. I think it would be interesting to start in 2015, actually. I was a kid running my little education company and this incredible guy that we all know shows up in my office. Uh, His name is Tim Ferriss. He's already super famous from his four-hour work week. And I think the four-hour body had already come out. And he wasn't there to see me. He was there to see my friend, Sam Parr, who was sharing an office with me because he was an investor in the hustle at the time. And I'm just out there kind of loitering around, trying to catch some lessons from Tim Ferriss. And I just remember he sits down, he starts talking about the hustle, and then he pivots to his own business. And he says, look, I have this podcast, I have this newsletter, and I have these really famous books that everybody knows me for but I don't make a lot of money on my books. I really make all of my money on my podcasts and my newsletters. But the problem is that I don't get any credibility or any coverage for having a great podcast. When I put out a great book, the media wants to interview me, podcasters want to interview me, people talk and tweet about me, and it grows my presence. And then I talk about my podcast and my newsletter and the media from these books, then powers my podcast and my newsletter. And that's really where I have a captive audience and I make a lot of money on my advertising. And for me, that like a, like kind of a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought to myself, man, I'm 25. I have no reputation and no credibility. I would love to have those things. And I don't know what I'm going to use them for, but I'm sure it's going to be helpful in my career. So I I went to my friend, Sean, and I said, hey, man, we should write a book. Let's kind of do it on easy mode. Let's interview some really interesting people in our network, write a book about founders in Silicon Valley, and that'll get us on kind of podcasts, that'll get us into the media, and we can grow our credibility. So we got really jazzed up about this idea, and we started sending ideas back and forth on this, and we got kind of to the core of what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. But then he was running a business and I was running a business and we got kind of like dragged off into our different directions and and it started to fizzle. And one day he sent me a link to a company called Book in the Box. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a company that does everything for you, right? So it's for people like us who want to write a book, who know what we want to write about, but We don't have time to write it. We don't know how to edit it. And we want it to be great, but we don't really know how to do that. So this company, Book in the Box, which then became Scribe Media, they had a package, I remember, I think it was like $35,000 or $40,000. And, you know, I looked at it really quickly and I said, look, I don't have that kind of money right now. I think let's just sunset this, uh, this little adventure of ours. Now... That was the end of that story, or so I thought. And fast forward the clock to about four months ago, I get a direct message on Twitter from Eric Jorgensen. Now, for those of you who don't know, Eric is this incredible guy. He's super smart. He's super kind. He has this awesome 
podcast called Smart Friends, where he interviews his smart friends. And I followed him on Twitter for a little while. He's he's probably most well-known for his book that he published called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which became uh, which became extremely successful. I think it has like, I looked it up recently. It has 35,000 reviews on Goodreads. So you you know a lot of people have read this book. And he reaches out to me, my business partner on Twitter over direct message. And he says, hey guys, there's this business called Scribe Media. It used to be called Book in the Box. They wrote my first book and I had an incredible experience with them. And now I'm writing my second and third book with them. And they're going through these, what looked like financial issues. He wasn't really sure what had happened, but he said, why don't you guys take a look? Cause he knows we, we sometimes look at distressed companies. He said, why don't you guys take a look and see if you can save this business? Because I think it's a great brand. I think it was a really good business financially and selfishly, you know, I really don't want to have to go figure out how to publish my own book with kind of random freelancers out there. So that's how we got introduced to Scribe. We took a quick look and we realized that it was really the 800 pound gorilla in the self-publishing world. So in the publishing world, there's the big publishers, you know, like Penguin Random House, And what they do is they go to an author or an author comes to them and they say, look, we'll give you a a bit of money up front, you know, let's say 200K to a million dollars. And then we're going to get our money back from the royalties of your sales. And then you get to keep 15 cents on the dollar and we get to keep 85 cents on the dollar. And for that, they kind of edit your book, they design your book, they help you publish your book, and they claim that they'll help you market your book. But I don't, I don't know how helpful they are with that. What Scribe does is they flip that model on its head. They really say that, look, we're not going to share in your royalties at all. You're going to pay us a fixed sum and either you can write the book or we can hire some world-class award-winning writers that will write in your voice. Our editors will edit it so that the book is compelling. And then we will design and publish this book so that it's available everywhere. But you get to keep all the royalties and you get to keep 100% of the rights of this book. And that's really this kind of industry that they've carved out for themselves and made themselves known as the highest quality, best book publishing company out there. So much so that, you know, as I was going through this acquisition process, I learned that they've published the books of over 2,000 authors now many like Fortune 1000 executives who want to build their credibility, many lawyers, anybody who's doing kind of like B2B service sales, people who want to publish their memoir, but also the books of some really famous people that we all know, frankly, like David Goggins published his Can't Hurt Me With Them, which sold 5 million copies. He sells it at about 20 bucks on Amazon. So, you know, he made a lot of money and got to keep all of it on there, fortunately. And he deserved to because that's really his audience. Another couple of authors that I'm really excited about that I've I've seen listed on the Scribe website are Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan. I'm a big fan of his work. And also Chris Voss, who's known as one of the world's 
most famous negotiators. I'm sure there's many, many more, or more that I don't know, but that's kind of the story and backstory of Scribe. And you know, once we got in there, we realized that it's it's truly an incredible business. It had an incredible team, and the previous CEO made some basic foot faults. He didn't have a CFO. He overspent. There's a few other things there, but ultimately we realized that if we just put in a little bit of structure and somebody who's watching the the finances, we could rebuild this company to its former glory. Dude, what a full circle story. That is, that's cool. Okay, wait, I have a couple of questions. So DM comes in from Eric. Hey, I got a lead on this business that I think's great. You guys are willing to look at distress. First question, was the business actually up for sale at the time that you heard about it, or did you guys have to preempt a discussion with the company? They had a a pretty big loan with a local lender, and that lender was doing a fire sale of its assets to potential buyers. But I think most people, when they took a look at this business, they just said to themselves, you know, I think this is going to be too much work, or they didn't really understand the value, the potential value of the company. And we just stayed around the hoop long enough and got to know kind of the sellers. We got to know the lenders and built up enough trust in order to to work out a deal that that we thought was going to be reasonable here. And how long did it take you to do diligence on the business? I, I know you said it's been four months since you heard, but... How long did it take you guys to get to a yes? You know, this one was a particularly unique process. I would say our diligence process usually takes anywhere between 30 to 60 days at most. In this particular case, because there was a bit of hair on the deal, the lender foreclosed on the assets of Scribe, right, in order to, to try to make some of their money back. So what happened was all of the employees got let go after we were looking at the deal for just a couple of weeks. So we realized that, you know, this business, it's all about the people, right? It's all about these people that have been here for many years that know how to make incredible books and publish incredible books. So what we did is we started a company that hired all these folks while we figured out the deal and figured out the diligence process with the bank. So we hired the people and we felt good about that. We said, okay, now we have the people that know how to make a great book. So if tomorrow a new author comes to us, we have the A through Z process that Scribe has basically patented around publishing great books. And then it really became a conversation of how do we buy the name and how do we kind of navigate that process with the lender, which wasn't something that we'd we'd had experience with in the past. So we had to work with some specialist that kind of advised us. So that so that's why this one was a little bit unique. And then ultimately, you know, we worked out a deal with the bank. We already had the team that was starting to do work with authors. We connected those two. And then my business partner had this genius idea. So Eric, who has published now a couple of books with Scribe, has this great persona, has built businesses in the past, and who recommended this this business to us, Xavier one day says, hey, you know what? We should ask Eric to be the CEO of this company because you know, he really has an incredible handle on where the future of publishing is heading and he's been an author himself. So you know, just after a few, I, I think when Xavier first proposed it to him, I imagine Eric was skeptical or hesitant. You know, he's he's been living the a life of an author and a podcaster for the last few years. And he said he's really been enjoying that. But it sounded like the kind of publishing and royalty industry and how that's 
changing here in the coming years, especially with the growth of like individual influencers, as you and I see through Twitter and LinkedIn, people are building their audiences, they're building their voice, and they're really developing their own distribution channels. So they don't need those publishers anymore who are going to keep 85 cents on the dollar. They just need to get a great story into a great book and they can distribute it themselves if, if they want to. So I think Eric saw that you know, he's really on the forefront of that revolution or of those of that disruption. And he wants to bring it to more influencers and more authors out there. So after a couple of conversations, he got super excited about it. We were obviously super excited about it. As you know, Eric's incredible. And as of last week, we announced that he's the CEO of Scribe. That's a it's it's just a great story. So when we were at Capital Camp this year, were you guys scheming on this thing in, in the background? Were y'all cheesing about this at the table? And this is what y'all were laughing about the whole time when I was looking over across the tables? I wish that was the case. Actually, the little bit of information that I got back then that gave me a sense that Eric would be open to this idea was that because like Scribe wasn't even a twinkle in my eye yet. It wasn't until a couple of weeks later that Eric reached out to us. But what we did talk about was I asked Eric, you know, hey, you, you're writing this book. You've had this other book that's been very successful. You have this podcast, which I really enjoy. Like, what else are you spending time on? What are you interested in? And that's really when he kind of dropped that hint around, I'm looking at the future of publishing. I'm looking at royalties. And I kind of asked him a few questions about that, but it, the conversation didn't really go anywhere. You know, it just kind of like passed in the night. And it wasn't, of course, until a month or two later that we are deep in diligence on this business. And Xavier asks me, hey, should we ask Eric to be the CEO of this business? I think he would be great for it. And I think to myself, you know what? He did mention something about having a passion about what Scribe is, and there may be some intersection there. So it's it's kind of crazy how things come together uh, by happenstance, but, but I feel very lucky from all this. This has been a great conversation. I really, I really appreciate it. That was a great way to round out the story and and congratulations on your latest buy. It's an awesome company. Thanks so much, Chris. This has been so fun and and I really appreciate your questions and I love this podcast. So this is this has been a tre- real treat for me. The large companies have been doing this forever. And now it's finally making its way into small business, which is hiring a global workforce. But I think a lot of small businesses wake up and they think, you know, that's only something the large companies could do. It's got to be really complicated. I don't even know where to start. I think that's one of the coolest things about Relay Human Cloud is how simple it is. Jason, how simple is it to actually work with Relay Human? We had the same questions when we started. How would you even do this? And most people stop right there. Too complicated. How would we do it? We don't know. So what Relay Human Cloud has done is they've made that super simple. You have the ability to log into a system that seems very familiar. It's not like logging into some website in India that you're worried about, right? They've made it very simple where you can log in, you can see all the candidates, see what fits what you're working for. You have somebody that you're going to talk to that's going to uh, help guide you. We had a gentleman that we were able to say, this is what we need. This is what we're looking for. And then once we got set up, onboarding people, the talent is already identified. Once we've identified what we need, onboarding them becomes a matter of days. Very, very simple because these are talented people already in an office ready to go. And so them being added to your team can happen almost instantly. And from our experience, we've been able to, when we identify a new need 
or that we need to add on to our team. We find that the person once onboarded onto our team, within days they are up and running and taking over responsibilities or adding to the existing team that exists. And that is because of the process that has been put in place, not only at Relay Human Cloud, but the process that once you're in the system doing it, it's very repetitive. And so we can bring people on just like it, it's actually easier than bringing someone on locally yep. because they do a lot of the heavy lifting. We don't have to do it. It's yep. all done there. And so all we get to do is just start working. And so we have found it to be a tremendous value. And we're actually, we're always looking for how can we continue to extend our workforce there because of the efficiencies it brings and the fact that we're not responsible for a lot of the the heavy lifting on the operational management, onboarding, training, all that stuff happens uh, at Relay Human Cloud. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 